The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this episode of the Court TV Podcast, after just 10 hours of deliberations, the jury for the Derek Chauvin murder trial reached a unanimous decision on all three counts. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to discuss the verdict and what it means for these types of cases going forward. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this special bonus podcast. Um, here we are. You know, the wheels of justice usually move very slowly, but in this case, they moved extremely fast. The jury in the Derek Chauvin case came back in just over 10 hours with a verdict on all three counts for the death of George Floyd. In case you missed it, here it is. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person, 019. And there you heard the verdict, and you heard some uh, crowd reaction. That was a, a separate feed from outside, a huge crowd gathering in, in Minneapolis, reacting as they all heard this verdict. Uh, guilty on all counts uh, for Derek Chauvin. Uh, joining me, as always, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor, as we discuss how we got here, why the jury uh, came back the way they did, and what it means going forward. Uh, Michael, let me, let me start here. And I want to start with um, the reaction, okay? The reaction of the crowd, because um, something that I've been hearing from a lot of people as they as they um, saw the crowd and understood what was happening, have said and pointed to the influence, the outside influence pushing this jury towards this verdict, and. Um, I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. And I think that's the way that some people are looking at it who maybe didn't watch the trial and, and hear all the evidence and the arguments and the jury instructions and everything else. But I'm interested in your take on that, on the influence or lack of influence of the public, the crowd, the protesters in, 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 in this jury reaching such a quick verdict and guilty on all counts. Well, I mean, what, what you're saying, Vinny, is an appealable issue, right? I mean, if you're talking about them being influenced by outside factors, that is something that clearly means Derek Chauvin didn't get a fair trial. I, I don't think that's what happened here. I think in Boisdier, they were very clear in picking jurors that um, were honestly saying that they could not 
They would not let outside factors influence their decision. Um, to be honest, uh, as a human being, I, I, I know that that had to have been very difficult. The specter of the cities burning or cities even on this country burning, um, if the verdict didn't come down the way um, we know the vast majority of the protesters wanted it to come down. Um, it's hard to believe that that didn't play a role, but these jurors swore uh, in court during voir dire that this was something they could do, and that's how they ended up on this jury, and I will take them at their word. I think there was more than enough evidence. Uh, I think the video in and, of, in and of itself was enough evidence. I thought the prosecution did a fantastic job. Um, so I find no evidence that that was the case, um, and, and um, I think it was, I think it was a, a good verdict. Yeah, I think I mean, for, for those of us who watched this gavel to gavel coverage of the case and saw the evidence, I mean, it was they were steamrolling over the defense. I mean, by the end of the case, uh, Eric Nelson, the defense attorney, was he was beaten up. I mean, he was he was worn out. I mean, it was it was they had a team of 14 prosecutors. They had a whole lineup of all these experts. And he's up there by himself with with uh, his one expert here and his one expert there. And it was just overwhelming. And, and, and to me, I think it's a very simplistic view by people who didn't watch the trial to say that this was influence and not evidence. I mean, we watch trials for a living, Michael. And, uh, I, you know, I can't say I'm surprised by this verdict. And, and also the, 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 the jury instructions and the law in Minnesota, what they had to prove to get these murder convictions um, should not surprise anyone. It, it, they did not have to prove that he planned and plotted all, and intended any of this. So you put all that into account with the, with the video. Uh, to me, it was about the evidence, not the outside influence. And it was a, a defense that really, at the end of the day, got overwhelmed by this prosecution. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, we all commend Eric Nelson for the job that he did with the facts that he had to deal with. And I think he did an, a commendable job, an excellent job even, of, of picking the facts that worked in favor of his version of the events um, working with the prosecution's witnesses, 38 of them in total, he only called seven, um, using those witnesses to help his theory of the case. But in the end, it just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough to overcome the overwhelming evidence presented um, by this prosecution. And not only presented, um, Vinny, but what was available to them. I mean, as people look at this verdict and are happy, there was cheering. Shortly thereafter, it was sort of tempered a bit by the sobering realization that in order to actually get this conviction, think about the perfect storm that had to come together to get it. You had to have this incredible video that showed it from start to finish, basically. Then you had to have prosecutors um, um, who actually, you had to get it appointed to the attorney general's office, get it out of the local prosecutor's hands, who we all know have relationships with police and those things can affect prosecutions. Then the AG's office gets 14 different top-notch prosecutors together, folks with incredible amount of experience, um, both on the civil side and the criminal side. Add to that the fact that some of these top doctors in the country on the issues of hearts and lungs and pulmonary and everything else were willing to come forward for free to testify in this case. Think about that perfect storm, Vinny, that had to come together to get a conviction in this case. And it came together and it came together extremely well. And it was a good, clean case. And you also needed a defendant who was guilty. 
and was it was clearly guilty beyond any and all reasonable doubt. I mean, think about the and it gets back to your first point, which is the the video itself. I mean, the influence. This is the most powerful piece of evidence that a prosecution team has ever had in their hands. Think about how it influenced people outside of the courthouse. It has the same influence, if not even greater, inside a courtroom. And to explain that behavior, there was no logical explanation. And and Derek Chauvin didn't offer one on the witness stand. Not that he had to, but the jury didn't. They they didn't have it. There was no reasonable explanation for for his conduct um, for for that amount of time and 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 why in the first place uh george floyd needed to be put in the prone position because he was already handcuffed so none of that by the end of the case i speaking with so many police officers on my show every night none of it made any sense listening to the expert like he's handcuffed already like why in the prone position and and then i had to take a step back yeah exactly all the videos that i have um analyzed on my show at night uh, when defendants are in the prone position, it's when they're trying to take them into custody and trying to get the handcuffs on. But here they're on already. So they're, they're, it, it made no sense. It just it made no logical common sense. And to me, that's what this was about. And the to me, saying that the outside influence of, of, of hey, we're going to burn down the city or we're going to do this or this is going to happen if we find him not guilty. Um I'm, I'm not buying it in light of the evidence. You know, if this was a case where it's like, oh, you know, it's one of those split second decisions can go either way or, you know, there's a there's a toss. I couldn't get a police officer on my show to say what Chauvin did was right. And I have police officers on every night defending um, a, a lot of these videos where uh, some members of the public think the police have crossed the line and the police explain. No, not at all. This is this is what's what's going on here. And in this case, no one, no one would do it. And it wasn't because of political pressures, because of their experience and having done the job. I think Eric Nelson ran into that same wall as well. I think there was a there were a few motions uh, towards uh, as we got to the trial where he was saying that he was just having a hard time finding experts, not only uh, use of force experts, but medical experts as well. And so, you know, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, he again, he was just dealing with a, with a, with a very difficult case as a defense attorney. Um, did the best he could, but the, the evidence was overwhelming. And, you know, that videotape, and I want to, again, I think uh, in the press conferences after uh, the verdict, um, both the AG as well as Ben Crump and his team all commended Donella Frazier and all the bystanders for their courage, um, for their, their attempts to try to help George Floyd. The fact that they all recognized what was going on was wrong. And, and Donella Frazier had the presence of mind at 17 years old to to take that video, which, as we all know, was the key piece of evidence in this case. All right. Now, what does this mean going forward? And, 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 and what impact does this have? And that's an interesting concept here because, you know, these stories and, and you know, during the course of just before the verdict, there was a, another officer involved uh, shooting and, and, and death. And these are going to continue to happen it's not going to stop. It's the nature of the business of police. Police um, enter situations that are very volatile, very dangerous. And, and sometimes the people they're dealing with have weapons and sometimes there's a threat and sometimes uh, people die. Sometimes it's police officers, sometimes it's members of the public uh, and it's all going to be on video. And um, I'm wondering, Michael, uh, are things going to be looked at differently now? Is there is there going to be a hesitation by police? Is there going to be 
um, situations where where police will be uh, more easily confronted by members of the public will be more difficult for them to do their jobs. Will it be easier for prosecutors to get juries to convict police officers? What this can this is going to have effects in so many different areas. Um, what's the first thing that jumps out to you? Well, I think one of the things that um, when we heard President Biden speaking um, on this case, uh, a refreshing change from the last four years, the fact that uh, Kamala Harris and both uh, President Biden saw fit to comment on this case that affect all, affected all Americans, no matter which side of the aisle you were on. Um, they were pushing for this uh, George Floyd um, uh, um, Justice and Policing Act. And what that act does, Vinny, is it makes it a little easier to prosecute police officers, taking these cases out of the hands of local prosecutors, because there are a number of steps along the way um, when you look at prosecutions of police officers that made it difficult to get these convictions. And what this, this act tries to do is not only correct some of the issues we're seeing on the street, like uh, the demilitarization of police, get some of those military weapons out of the hands of the police department, take some of that money, put it into some other areas. Um, it's looking to get uh, more training in terms of mental health issues for police officers, and also uh, more opportunities for them to get help for any mental, mental issues they may be having. Talks about getting rid of no-knock warrants and chokeholds, um, talks about all those things in terms of street policing, but it also talks about um, getting these independent bodies together to investigate these cases, get it out of the hands of the police, get peaks and get a couple of uh, civilians on these boards that are um, talking about police reform and looking at these cases, things that can make it more palatable and more possible to get convictions in these cases. So those are first steps we're talking about. And yes, we will look at these cases closer. Oh, another thing in that uh, George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, they really want to demand on a federal level that everyone on the local level have body cams, finding money and budgets across the country to get body cams on police officers. And again, that protects not only the civilians, but also the police officers. So all those things coming together is a nice start when we look at reforming policing, we look at creating better relationships between the police and the community and creating situations where, you know, split second decisions come out more in favor of the civilian. Um, and, and hopefully everyone walks away from these difficult situations a lot. Well, you, and you talk about the partnership and I look at these situations and um yeah, I think it's it's a, a partnership between police and the community. And I think the community has to step up as well. I mean, police have a, have a difficult job. They're, they're thrust into situations that ordinary citizens are not thrust into. It is their job. And when you have noncompliance, which escalates and elevates situations that could be very simply uh, taken care of, um, I think there should be some accountability for the public as well. I mean, we always talk about this, this, this relationship and this partnership, but a relationship goes two ways. Uh, it goes two ways. You know, you're, you're ta being taken into custody. You go into custody and then, you, you know, your lawyers fight it out or however the, the system works. And if, the, and if the cop is wrong, he's, you find out he's wrong. Uh, but things get very dangerous when there's noncompliance. And that's another one of the um, common denominators 
in I would say about, you know, 90 percent of these cases that we're seeing now is that police are trying to do their job uh, and there's noncompliance and thing gets, things get very dangerous very quickly. Yeah, no question about it. Um, but I think there might be an issue here of the cart before the horse. I think if you talk to people in um, uh, certain communities um, and their relationships with police, oftentimes you see that noncompliance in situations where um, they feel they're not getting the respect they deserve. They feel like they're not getting um, the um, approach that they deserve as civilians, that they feel that they're automatically being profiled in many ways. I think as the police department takes a different approach and reforms some of the ways that it approaches the community, the community will then begin to approach the situation differently. There's a meme going around on the internet, which I thought was interesting. It asked a black man to always comply with an officer who's not treating him with respect. Is like asking a woman not to wear a dress so that she doesn't get raped, right? It's it's one of these situations where, you know, um, there has to be this, this relationship between the two. And I think both the community and the police have to work on their approach to each other. And so there's an expectation that uh, civilians have regarding how police treat them. That has to change. And I think they, the community, because of the longstanding history of issues with the police are saying, the police have to make a change if you want us to make a change. And of course, the police are saying, well, we want you to make a change before we make a change. And I'm not sure that that argument is as strong as the one that the community has, or at least that's how they feel. So those things have to be worked on simultaneously, I think, to come to a solution. But I agree. It's about a partnership between the community and the police. Yeah, it's absolutely a partnership because, you know, in, in many states now, every officer involved shooting um they are releasing the body cams. I'm looking at these things every day. And time and time again, someone's being placed under arrest. And when they, you know, don't comply, uh, things just go south. They go south very quickly. It gets dangerous for everyone involved. I've seen police officers really, I don't shot. Want to cut you, I don't want to cut you off, but I know you know, I know you've seen it, what many people will say. And I've seen these videos where officers give a lot more leeway seemingly to certain perps as opposed to, for instance, perps of color, whereas they tolerate a lot more talk back, a lot more physicality from, let's say, uh, someone that might be uh, white, um, whereas someone who's black doesn't get that same leeway. And they, they're just much quicker to, to escalate a situation. Um, you know, people have that uh, issue with the George Floyd arrest, that there was a time where they couldn't see his hands. It escalated very quickly. We've seen a number of times where uh, there was a gentleman at a, at a gas station, a, uh, a black Puerto Rican gentleman who was uh, in a gas station. And immediately they're walking up to the car with guns out. You know, the escalation happened so quickly. So, you know, those are the issues that folks are really focused on. Yeah, the, and, and I think the ultimate um issue for me and 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 the way i've looked at this and read the statistics and everything else is that it's it's the initial um contact that throws off all the numbers there's just more contact between police and uh people of color and that throws off the statistics but once the contact is made between the public and police uh, the statistics are pretty clear that there's there's no difference in the uh, rate of death based upon your race. Those numbers are consistent. 
the, 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 the way the stats are thrown off is because there's many more contacts between police and people of color. And I think ultimately uh, many people aren't looking at that issue. And that's that's where the real issue is. So how do we lower that number? How do we how do we lower that number and therefore lower uh, the, the number of deaths and 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 shootings involving police and people of color is, is somehow you've got to lower that number of contacts. And whatever the answer is to that, I think uh, ends up making things uh, much more equitable. But no one's looking at it that way. Everyone's looking at it after the contact when it's really um, how does that contact take place? OK, so why is there? That's what, that's what the study says. The University of Maryland. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with the studies, but I think people are looking at it that way. They understand there's two issues there. There's over-policing, which is why there's so many more contacts, and there's profiling, which is why there's so many more contacts. So there, there are two major issues that create that skewer in statistics that you're talking about, and that's fine. I agree. Uh, with the, yeah, I'm with you on that, and I'm with you on that. That's that's where I want the focus to be, right? Because otherwise, you're not you're not going to get a solution to this. Because once police are in contact with members of the public, um, the the numbers are clear that it is the same regardless of race. What your chances are of dying? It's just there's so many more contacts. So I think you got to take. I mean, there's so much focus on police tactics and and use of force and everything else. How about not even being in contact? That's where you've got to go. And that's where you talk about profiling, which is an old, old issue. When I was a prosecutor in Bergen County, New Jersey, that's when that term profiling first came up because it was police officers in New Jersey who were profiling people coming back from uh, your state in New York uh, and their cars are getting pulled over. So and I, Benny, I was profiled many times yeah. making that commute. I used to play ball out in Bergen County. There you go. I used to come from Brooklyn, go out to Bergen County. I knew you looked and familiar. I can't tell you how many times. <laughs> I will tell you how many times I was stopped by police officers because there were three or four brothers in a car going out to play ball. And, you know, we're all law students and we're all, you know, we're all doing well for ourselves. But yet still, we were getting treated this way and none of us liked the way we were treated. And, and those issues are, are where this, this problem lies in terms of I, I'm just a citizen driving a car. I think I deserve respect. And a lot of times we just didn't feel like we were getting the respect we deserve. And if I wasn't you know, if I was just a little less sort of in tune with what was going on, I could easily have fallen into a gap there and gotten to problems. But I, I kept my cool. But, you know, it's asking a lot. Yeah, it's asking, it's a lot. asking so too yes, much. It's, and, it's, and where, it's unreasonable that you should have to do that. And, and I think that's where yeah, the solution exactly. comes. So uh, exactly. they just need to put us in charge and we'll fix everything. Um, <laughs> Michael Ayala, uh, thank you so much. Uh, you know, uh, this verdict came fast and. Uh, it's guilty across the board. I don't think we were necessarily shocked, but I was just shocked by the speed of all of it. But uh, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate you jumping in here. I know you're busy. No, it's been great, man. I've really appreciated and enjoyed our conversations. All right, folks. When we come back, the attorney general, the, the, the head prosecutor in the case, uh, Keith Ellison, spoke afterwards and said something that I absolutely need to respond to. That's next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice.
I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability, which is the first step towards justice. And now the cause of justice is in your hands. And when I say your hands, I mean the hands of the people of the United States. That's Attorney General Keith Ellison speaking after the verdict. Keith Ellison is the lead prosecutor in this case, the lead prosecutor. Okay, and I'm saying that for a reason, because I could not disagree with him more when he said this verdict is not justice. Um, When he said that, I was absolutely floored, shocked, um, could not believe he he was saying that. And, and, And here's why. Keith Ellison, in this case, in this trial, is the prosecutor. Okay, and he is speaking not as a prosecutor, but as a politician. And that's not his role. That was not his job in this trial. He was the prosecutor. And that word, justice, is a very specific word when it comes to prosecutors. It's not just, you know, you just kind of throw it around. No, justice has a specific meaning. And you as a prosecutor have a specific role when it comes to the the world of justice. Let me read you what the American Bar Association has in in their um, uh, guidelines. A prosecutor has the responsibility of a minister of justice and not simply that of an advocate. This responsibility carries with it specific obligations to see that the defendant is accorded procedural justice, that guilt is decided upon the basis of sufficient evidence, and that special precautions are taken to prevent and to rectify the conviction of innocent persons. Okay? That is what, see, justice has a specific meaning for you as a prosecutor. And when you come out after a verdict and say that's not justice and you've had a conviction, that means that an innocent person's been convicted. <laughs> that's, that's what it means. I know that's not what he meant, but you have to understand your role and what you're saying. You are not a politician. You are not a pundit. You are the prosecutor of this case. And you can't redefine what justice is when you are standing in those shoes. I've said this all the time. Prosecutors, their job is to administer justice, which is the truth. The jury spoke the truth at the end of that case. Derek Chauvin is a murderer. Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. Derek Chauvin is responsible for the death of George Floyd. And those words all ring true. They are the truth. And the jury spoke the truth. That is justice. That verdict was justice. Now, if you want to talk about other problems and other issues that you have, you can do that. But don't, in the wake of a jury's verdict, come out and say that's not justice. And you're the attorney general who was the lead prosecutor in the case. That's wrong. That's wrong. The only way it could not be justice is if an innocent man is convicted. Because your job is not as just an advocate. Your job is to see justice, that the truth comes out. And that's what we had the trial for. I mean, take a moment to say, yes, this jury did their job. That was justice inside the courtroom. And then maybe say, well, outside of that courtroom and here in the world, there is more justice that we need to we need to uh, take care of or you need to take care of. We took care of it here. But don't confuse the public in that role. I think that was a huge mistake. And, and because, number one, people can take it out of context. And for the prosecutor to come out after conviction and say that wasn't justice? Come on. Come on. 
Understand your role, your obligations, and who you are. I know he's a politician by trade, but he's a lawyer and a prosecutor now. That's your job. Understand it. You got to separate the two. You got to separate the two. And I always say this, that, that when politics intersects with the law, that's when you run into trouble. And, and, and there's an instance of it right there because he's speaking as a politician instead of as a prosecutor. And you are the attorney general. Had to get that off my chest because I heard it afterwards. I was like, why are you saying that? This is what we were seeking. And, and justice, I believe, was delivered inside the courtroom. If there's more justice that needs to be delivered outside, so be it. And I'm sure it, 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 work needs to be done. But that was not the time nor the place to talk about the verdict that way. Anyhow, folks, what a trial. Um, the entire trial, by the way, you can go to CourtTV.com. It's on demand. It is free. You can watch the whole thing from start to finish. Like, let's say you heard the verdict and you're not trusting it and, and you don't understand how they got there. Watch the trial and, and you'll certainly understand. Uh, also, check out our show notes and uh, watch me on Court TV every night from 8 to 11, taking you inside the world of crime and justice. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode of the Court TV podcast. Have a great day. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.